2: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The number of police shootings of unarmed men and women of color has led many communities to demand more police accountability. One approach is through the creation of a civilian review board. Coming up, we'll talk to the New Haven Independent editor, Paul Bass, about why Elm City lawmakers approved a civilian review board after a decades-long request from residents. We'll also check in with an expert on police accountability to find out how civilian review boards have operated in other places across the country. First, the federal government shutdown continues, and the ramifications are across the board, including multiple public assistance programs that impact the most vulnerable residents. Now, last week, Where We Live focused in on homelessness in Connecticut. One of the programs that provide housing vouchers to the elderly and disabled is called Section 8 Project-Based Rental Assistance. We wanted to circle back today on the voucher issue because if the federal government doesn't pay landlords, these vulnerable Americans could be evicted. In a few minutes, we'll hear from the Connecticut Mirror about state residents who could be affected. And for more on the widespread impact on low-income Americans, joining us by phone, Kristen Capps, staff writer for CityLab. One of his many beats is housing. Kristen, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So tell us about uh, how you focused in on low-income residents who receive federal housing aid. How is the shutdown impacting them?
1: Well, one of the questions we wanted to ask right away is about Uh, The contracts that are in place with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, in December and again in January and next month, also in February, there are certain um, tranches of contracts with landlords that will expire. These contracts provide housing for tens of thousands of seniors and disabled uh, Americans across the country.
2: Um, when we talk about uh, these low-income households, you mentioned uh, the elderly and the disabled. Tell us about um, their, um, like what their level is in terms of poverty, and how are they eligible for the specific program?
1: So, under the project-based rental assistance um, contracts, these are, these are contracts with landlords to provide housing for extremely low-income residents. Um, these are some of the most vulnerable households in America the average income level um, for people living in this housing is less than $13,000 per year. So we're talking about households whose average income is below the federal poverty line. Very, very vulnerable uh, people.
2: So where they live in terms of, are they buildings where landlords have set aside apartments that will accept this particular uh, HUD program, Kristen?
1: Yes, that's right. When we talk about Section 8, um, we often think about Um, housing vouchers, which are portable, which flow with the tenant. The tenant has a voucher that uh, he or she gives to the landlord. With the project-based assistance program, this is a contract that the government has with the landlords to provide housing for these very, very extremely low-income people. So you're generally talking about apartment buildings or uh, small developments um, where often most of the residents, if not all of the residents, are um, in this category uh, of poverty.
2: So you write in your City Lab piece that uh, there were contracts that um, were uh, expired, uh, that were set to uh, be renewed, but expired because of the shutdown. And so what does that mean for landlords? They just aren't getting paid.
1: Yeah, that's right. The, um, you know, government has a contract w- with these landlords, but um, because uh, the Department of Housing did not or could not renew those contracts in time. There were roughly about 1,150 contracts around the country that expired in December. That's another 500 contracts this, expiring this month and about the same level next month. So we're looking at about between around 70,000 residents right now whose housing status is just now up in the air. Now, a lot of these landlords maybe can float uh, a month without essentially receiving the rent. But when you're talking about a whole apartment building, that's a real substantial burden for a landlord to endure. When it gets to the two-month level, I mean, I think all bets are off
2: uh traditionally uh, if a tenant doesn't pay the rent a landlord uh, can then proceed with eviction but is this something that is still on hold like you said that they might be able to dip into reserves for a month two months but then there's also the uh, short-term impact of uh, repairs or i'm just curious how that impacts a particular uh, residents who are in limbo kristen
1: so the landlords when they're facing uh, these con- when they're essentially not getting uh paid because the government's contract has lapsed um there are a lot of uh, uh, bad effects that can happen um some there may be critical maintenance projects that are underway that aren't happening the landlord has to pay the mortgage and if a landlord can't pay the note then the landlord has to i suppose negotiate with the bank on behalf of these families um there are you know uh, projects that just stall, uh, development projects that just won't go forward. As for the residents themselves, these are people without reserves. Um, when we're talking about seniors or disabled individuals with an a, a income that's so low, they, this is the backstop. There isn't a backstop beyond this. This is, this is the backstop.
2: This is where we live. Uh, With us is Kristen Capps, a staff writer for CityLab who uh, covers housing. Uh, He reported on uh, how the federal government shutdown is impacting extremely low-income residents, uh, many elderly and disabled, who uh, get uh, rental assistance through uh, the federal government, through HUD, and uh, their landlords are not being paid. Uh, We wanted to hear more about that impact. So joining us now in studio is Clarice Silber. She's a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Clarice, welcome to our show.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Now, you focused in, as as well as your colleague uh, Anna Radalat, on how uh, Connecticut residents are uh, being impacted um, who rely on housing assistance. Uh, Tell us uh, um, how many people are impacted and where they live.
0: Yeah, so it's a little bit unclear exactly how many people are being impacted by this in the state, but we do know that at least... 10 contracts expired in December, and another five will expire in January, and then another six in February. And that's according to data by the National Low Income Housing Coalition. Uh, but we did report on a bunch of you know different Section 8 project-based housing that is being affected on this locally. One of those is the Barber Gardens Apartments, which is located in the north end of Hartford. And that's an 84-unit complex that houses residents that are dealing with everything from mold and rodent infestation to leaks, uh, breaking ceilings, doors and windows that don't work. And they are dealing with a lot of issues right now that they're trying to get resolved, but that is basically being impeded because of the shutdown.
2: Uh, because they've been tra- they're trying to move out a particular housing complex into another?
0: Yeah. So there are some residents that are basically, you know, they're waiting on the results of a HUD inspection from October. And those results were supposed to be released in December. But because of the shutdown, that has basically stalled, and those results are not out now. Uh, and those results could basically pr- potentially get them remediation on their, on their units. And then there are some other uh, children that are living in the building that have acute respiratory issues that are being exacerbated by the mold. And so those families uh, could potentially move out. The landlord could be... Required to move them out into different housing while those issues are resolved, Um, but that would require another inspection. And so because of the shutdown, all of those inspections have halted and those children are still living in that building um, dealing with those issues.
2: Uh, uh, Kristen, uh, we heard uh, Clarice talking about um, specific uh, issues within Connecticut, uh, not just on uh, seeing if there's uh, their landlord is getting paid, but this ability to to move, to get uh, HUD inspections so that they can find uh, a better quality apartment uh, to live. So there are across-the-board impacts within HUD, not just uh, in paying the rent?
1: Uh, yes, that's right. I mean, there are manifold um, uh effects based on on the shutdown. And I think that's important when we look at this from the national perspective that we are talking about 800,000 furloughed workers who are already not receiving paychecks. But um, the points of contact that those people have with the economy and the points of contact that the federal government has with the economy um, are just revealing. And we're seeing um, more of these effects expand um, every day. Uh, I think with when we're talking about HUD specifically, it's, it's really unconscionable to put um, these families, these vulnerable households into mm. this position. But it's also unconscionable for the government to just not pay its contracts, uh, to not, to not um, pay its word.
2: Do we know if states or municipalities have backup funding to help fill in the gaps if, if the federal government doesn't come through, Kristen?
1: I think that um, municipalities are starting to look at that. There is, um, there are some state funds that they are, uh, some states that are trying to dip into those funds, but a lot of those funds are already stretched uh, so thin. Um, Nationally, we've been looking for um, guidance and expansion of some of these programs where state and local funds are dwindling, um, where they are stretching to meet um, these gaps where uh, the federal budget for these programs has not expanded. at much and has in fact contracted in a lot of program areas over the last 40 years.
2: Uh, Clarissa, uh, uh, one of the uh, Section 8 project-based uh, uh, residents that you profiled, um, they live in Berlin. So their landlord's the Berlin Housing Authority. When we talk about authorities that are operating these uh, housing complexes, uh, do they have enough reserves uh, while they wait for the federal government uh, to get through the shutdown?
0: Uh, So the Berlin Housing Authority, which they house uh, residents in the Marjorie Moore Village apartments, they are one of the uh, buildings that we profiled along with Casa Verde Sur, which is based in Hartford, that were in the midst of renewing their contracts in December when the shutdown happened. And so because of that... Their contracts were not renewed and they are no longer receiving any subsidies from the government. So they, we do know that Marge, the Marjorie Moore Village Apartments are dipping into reserves to cover mortgages and other expenses uh, as of now, but it's unclear how long they will be able to do that.
2: Uh, Kristen, at the top of the show, we mentioned this is the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. Um, how does this impact, I guess, the private landlord's trust in HUD when they see that um, you know th- there's no guarantee that, that they'll be paid?
1: Well, landlords already have um, a lot of uh, issues with um, Section 8 programs. I don't think that all of those issues are um, very uh, reputable. Uh, some of the uh, the distrust about Section 8 is um, uh, suspicious. However, um, landlords across the country have to deal with a lot of different kinds of housing authorities. And when those housing authorities are not well-funded, then the entire program uh, you know, takes on a, a reputation. So when landlords are not, in fact, receiving checks from the government, then they are right to uh, be suspicious and maybe even be hesitant to um, engage uh, with this program in the future. I mean, one of the, one of the uh, great benefits of working with Section 8, especially in the voucher program or the contract-based program, is that the federal government is paying the rent. Um, there shouldn't be a better renter than the federal government. Uncle Sam's checks should clear, and they should come in on time, and now they're not.
2: You mentioned uh, about 80,000 Americans so far impacted who rely on Section 8 project-based vouchers. But come next month, if the shutdown were to continue, how would that impact even more Americans under the Section 8 choice vouchers?
1: Right. In February, we face a very serious cliff, um, both because the, the Section 8 voucher program as you mentioned, expires, and also the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program in USDA um, expires in February. There won't be funds to pay for those programs, and that means millions of households um, suddenly left in the lurch um, without housing uh, assistance and without food assistance. Um, the, if, if the shutdown has been chaotic for the country so far, I mean, we don't have a word for the kind of cataclysm that awaits if it extends into or beyond February.
2: Kristen Caps again, is a staff writer for CityLab. We'll tweet out a link to his story, At Where We Live. Kristen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And then also for Local Perspective, we had Clarice Silber in studio with me. She's a reporter for ctmirror.org, the Connecticut Mirror. Clarice, I know you'll be uh, following up on this story. We appreciate your time.
0: Thank you. Good to be
2: with you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Uh Coming up next, we check in on a new civilian review board in the city of New Haven, and we talk with a criminal justice professor to find out how effective are civilian review boards. Now, do you live in New Haven? What's your response to the board of aldermen approving this civilian review board years after citizens approved its creation by referendum? You can join us, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Where We Live is coming to where you live. Take a coffee break with the Where We Live team as we travel to local cafes around the state. Now, what issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs? Join me next Tuesday, January 22nd, at the Vanilla Bean Cafe in Pomfret, Connecticut, the Quiet Corner, along with Where We Live producers Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff. We can't wait to meet you. You can check out Where We Live's Facebook page for more info. Now, uh, back to our show, Connecticut law requires Connecticut municipalities to create police commissions, but the creation of civilian review boards is up to local towns, and just a handful in our state have them. They're rare across the country as well. There are about 144 civilian review or oversight boards that existed in 2016. That's according to a national organization that looks at civilian oversight of police, or NACOL. Now, this month, the City of New Haven's Board of Aldermen approved a new civilian review board. Citizens there have been asking for one for decades. Why did it take so long? Uh, Joining us by phone, Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent. Hi, Paul. Good morning. Nice to speak with you. Nice to talk with you as well, Paul. So tell us a little bit about when this uh, push happened in the community of New Haven to get a civilian review board. I understand it's been a decades-long request.
3: It is. We created a civilian review board two decades ago, and it had no teeth, no subpoena power, no ability to independently investigate civilian complaints. So there was a move in a city referendum to create one that had teeth. That passed in 2013, and it took five years to pass it because of, I don't know if it might be too detailed for your listeners to be interested outside New Haven, but the basic issue was how do you really give it teeth? How important is it that there be subpoena power for that commission, that it be able to have staff to investigate complaints and in the end, they were able to pass something that had teeth.
2: I understand uh, there was a, a New Haven resident, Emma Jones, uh, who lost her son in a police-involved shooting. What can you tell us about uh, Malik Jones, her son, and what yeah, happened that, that was
3: not a New Haven shooting. That was an East Haven shooting. It was a pretty outrageous incident. Her son was in East Haven, and a cop thought because he had a traffic violation he wanted to stop him, and Malik Jones fled. He was a young man. And the cop from East Haven went on a high-speed chase over the Quinnipiac Bridge into New Haven through city streets on a suspected traffic violation, no other information, follows him into a vacant lot, boxes him in, rushes up to his car, breaks the window. Malik Jones was unarmed. The cop later said that he thought Jones was giving him a go-to-hell look, so he shot him point-blank dead. And what was interesting about that was that there were no repercussions um, the U.S. attorney thought it was a terrible shooting, bad police work, but no legal basis on to bring the charge. Same with the state's attorney. The town promoted him. That was the town before the U.S. Department of Justice came in and had a consent decree and a lawsuit that forced them to put racist cops in jail. And he was uh, elevated to department spokesman. So uh, Emma Jones had been to law school, that's the mother And started a campaign for a civilian review board, which was created, but as I said, it it didn't really have any teeth, wasn't able to investigate cases, didn't even get a quorum usually. So she and other activists renewed the call and kept the pressure on city lawmakers to make good on what the referendum said. And they they came up with something that the top police officials are comfortable with as well. The police union is not. But I think that overall they did a good job getting consensus.
2: Uh, where we live did reach out to the uh, police union representing uh, New Haven police officers. We did not hear back. But uh, walk us through, uh, Paul, again, Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent. This civilian review board that has been approved recently by the board of aldermen, um, exactly what will it allow its members to do?
3: So if citizens bring up a complaint that the board believes should be investigated, they will not have a staff and ability to hire an outside investigator to look into the case. And then they'll be able to subpoena the officers involved, and in the end make a recommendation that goes to the police chief. They still can't fire the cop, but it will be done in a public way and then need to get public explanations.
2: And who will exactly sit on this review board? How many people are we talking about?
3: Talking about 15 people. Most of them will come from 10 districts in town. Our city's divided up into 10 community policing districts. It's actually the, a great bedrock of democracy when we started community policing in the 90s. We created these districts that have substations, police substations, where citizens meet every month. At first, just with cops, but now with everybody, city officials, developers. So there's a group of active citizens that will pick um, will pick who will sit on this board based on recommendations from community groups. The mayor will then nominate the people the CUNY picks. The board of old will approve them, and there will also be some other mayor at-large appointees and one from the Board of Alders, which helps settle the subpoena power question, because the Board of Alders has subpoena power.
2: Uh, we mentioned uh, the police union not being supportive of a civilian review board. Uh, tell us what some of their concerns are, Paul.
3: Their concern is that there's a very anti-police mood in the country right now, and that that's making it hard enough for the police to do their job. They're worried that activists who are biased against the police will bring cases that aren't fair and subject cops who have done nothing wrong to unfair grilling. And... We've lost a lot of police officers for a variety of reasons in New Haven that really more have to do with budget. We can't pay them the way the suburbs do, so we've been poached. The suburban chiefs send people to our graduation of new recruit classes to see who they're going to pick off after the train. So they feel this is going to hasten that problem. They're not going to get a fair shot.
2: Uh, Paul Bass is with us to talk about the new Civilian Review Board that's been approved in the city of New Haven. We wanted to get uh, more perspective on uh, how common CRBs are in the country and what kinds of power they have, depending on uh, where they've been implemented. So joining us by phone now is Sam Walker. He's Emeritus Professor of Criminal Justice at University of Nebraska Omaha and author of the book, The New World of Police Accountability. Sam, welcome to our show. Thank you. So we just uh, heard uh, Paul Bass uh, walk through um, how there used to be a, a Civilian Review Board, uh, not a lot of, of power, so to speak. This new iteration would allow uh, members to have subpoena power, would be completely independent of the police department. Is this typical of Civilian Review Boards that you've studied?
4: Actually not. Uh, very few Civilian Review Boards actually have the power to independently investigate you know, particular complaints. Or, or incidents. So the fact that this one has the, the, that power uh, you know, is, is very significant and, and, a, and a very good development because you you can't make a judgment about a complaint unless you have the power to gather the facts. And that includes subpoena power to gather the you know, reports uh, on the incident and also the, the power to to question the officer involved. Uh, and so m- most review boards don't have that power. They only review what internal affairs sends over to them, and and you know you're missing all the important uh, nitty gritty details about a-, a case. So this is very good for New Haven.
2: Um, how long have civilian review boards been around, uh, Sam? Are we seeing more of them being formed with the attention in communities about uh, uh, police shootings of unarmed um, men and women of color?
4: Well, in the '60s there were. Two major ones, New York City and and Philadelphia, because of actions by local police unions, they were both defeated. And police unions have been fighting this, you know, for 50 years. Uh, They've been losing it uh, in more recent years. Um, Then it was reborn. The first one was really Kansas City in 1969. And it really took off in the the late 70s and early 80s. And now, as you mentioned, we have 144. So that covers most of of the major cities. And there's a wide variety of different kinds of of citizen oversight agencies. That's the more all-encompassing generic term to use. Civilian review boards uh, is, is simply one form of that.
2: Uh, You can join our conversation as we talk about uh, ways communities are trying to increase police accountability. Uh, One way, as we're learning, is through a civilian review board. Uh, What's your take, especially if you live in New Haven? You can join us, 860-275-7266. Luis is calling from New Haven. Luis, go ahead.
5: Hi. um, Good morning.
2: So tell us, uh, you live in New Haven. What's been uh, your reaction, response to the creation of this new civilian review board?
5: well i'm really I'm really happy that the uh, that the board um, uh, came to um, to a reality um I think that we need uh, really um uh, uh, mechanisms that can hold uh police officers accountable um knowing that there has been a lot of um cases in this in the city of New Haven that where uh, police officers have um, have beat people and have uh, not been um, uh, uh, there has not been any accountability, and I'm also speaking from a from a personal point of view, from a personal perspective. Um, about a year ago, I was arrested, uh, wrongfully, in New Haven by the acting chief of police. Eventually, the um, the um, the police uh, uh, had a internal review um, investigation uh, where they found that. The arresting officer, Chief Ariel Melendez, uh, violated my constitutional rights. Um, So I'm very happy that this uh, this, uh, came to life. I know I really want want to acknowledge uh, folks who have been on the ground organizing for a lot of years, Um, Mrs. Emma Jones, who who has been fighting this for um, a bit over two, uh, two decades.
2: Louisa, well, thank you for joining us. I wanted to go back to our expert, uh, Sam Walker, who's the author of The New World of Police Accountability, who studies uh, civilian review boards. Uh, how, when we look at the outcomes, uh, whether it's something that has uh, more teeth, like the one uh, New Haven has just implemented, or uh, those that um, rely on uh, police as being uh, members as well, not as independent, um, does it raise accountability in communities? What has, what's been the evidence?
4: Well. First of all, there, there's been shockingly little uh, research on the effectiveness of civilian review boards. You know, do, do they reduce incidents of use of force? Uh, do they reduce citizen complaints and so on? But there is uh, some evidence on, on some of the functions that uh, review boards engage in, which have which proven to be very effective. One of the, the, the most important things is, uh, as part of an investigation of an incident, uh, the review board discovers that the real problem is that the police department has a terrible policy a very weak policy on a particular uh, situation such as a domestic violence incident or uh, treating homeless people and so on departments have they find the department has weak policies they find that the department's training is completely inadequate or even non-existent on a particular issue and then that the supervision uh, of of our of officers on that and so the review board can then you know distill that into a report which goes to the public which is a very important form of public uh, uh, information and to city council and with a strong recommendation for change that's important because those changes will cover all officers if you focus only on individual complaints let's say even you succeed in in getting some discipline for a particular officer, that's one officer. But the department as a whole doesn't change. So it's there are different things that a review board can do.
2: You can join our conversation, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. 275 7266 Carrie is calling from New Haven. Carrie, uh, go ahead. Hi.
6: My name is Carrie Ellington. I've helped to organize on the ground here in New Haven um, for the all civilian Review Board. Um, that we, you know, just got enacted into
7: law.
2: And so tell us a little bit about um, now that you have uh, this Civilian Review Board um, moving forward, um, what do you hope uh, will be accomplished in terms of what we've been hearing from our our guest uh, who's been studying civilian oversight uh, boards across the country? Uh, Will it have the power to enact structural change versus just focusing on a particular officer?
6: Well, um, the entity in and of itself is, uh, is an act, right, of structural change um, because normally um, the the state the status quo here in Connecticut is when um, there is a police shooting, a police misconduct, um, that police investigate the police. Um, and that is a problem that's recently been highlighted um, in a recent article, I forget what publication, but that showed that the chief state's attorney's office has, since 2013, um, investigated over uh, 23 incidents of police shootings, and all those police have been cleared of any wrongdoing. Right? Um, we also know I uh, organized a group called People Against Police Brutality. Um, we organize in solidarity with Miss Emma Jones and the Malik Jones organization. And we also know that here in Connecticut, uh, there have been over 19 people in the past two years killed um, by police. Uh, so, police violence is a crisis here in Connecticut. And we need, um, we need municipalities to look at New Haven as a model and to look to adopt civilian review boards. Um, we need communities to have power over uh, policing police misconduct um, and not the police themselves. Uh, for some reason in this country, police, police are hold, held to a different standard. Um, and, and police are human just like everyone else, right? And we've seen a crisis in this nation in black and brown communities, um, with police gunning down unarmed um, black and brown civilians, right? Um, so we see that police are plagued um, with the, with with issues that normal human beings are plagued with, right? And they need to be held to uh, the same standard, not to a different standard, um, and not given impunity, and not allowed to come into uh, uh, create um, an escalate situations when they should be trained to de-escalate the situation.
2: Well, Carrie, thank but, you thank you for calling in to give us more perspective um, as one of the people uh, that helped organize this new civilian review board in New Haven. I wanted to go back to Paul Bass, who's editor of the New Haven Independent. So we heard um, Sam Walker uh, talking about uh, the you know these review boards that are independent, um, being able to forward recommendations. Um, so I'm just curious how uh, the board of aldermen uh, will be approaching that in the sense of if a civilian review board uh, makes a recommendation recommendation it really is still up to is it still up to the police chief Campbell and mayor Harp to see uh, it, what it, is implemented is up
3: to the police chief and the board of police commissioners which has been really have proved to be unable to hold cops accountable in New Haven for misconduct you know you brought up the structural issue Sam Marker brought up Luis, who called he actually had a rare case where you didn't need a civilian review board the system worked an assistant police chief stole his phone while he was legally recording them in action and ordered the phone's memory erased. And because that internal investigation, not only was the assistant chief forced into retirement, although he got $100,000-plus um, pension, but the state law changed. The city had a new policy in how you deal with people's rights when they record. The state passed a law, Senator Looney, based on Luis's case a decade ago that holds cops personally responsible in civil lawsuits if they violate your First Amendment rights. But here's the kicker. Since then, the New Haven Department, which is not more brutal than other departments, most of the cops are very good cops, but there's misconduct, they have been complete outlaws on that policy. They arrested one of our photographers for taking pictures Mm -hmm. on a species charge that took seven months to throw out. And when they investigated it, they had a report that concluded on the facts that their sergeant at the scene had violated the law and their own policies, but still cleared her. And so I think the professor is right that one role, of civilian review board, is to not only look at individual cases, but look at the broader policies that need to be changed. But when you even the better departments, like New Haven's, when you change a policy, they still are unable to police themselves and put that policy to effect. So I think it'll be up to the really the kind of people calling into your show today to hold... Police officials accountable for putting into place. I mean, you had Louis's case, which was the best example of system working, and then a full decade of failures after that to follow those new policies. So the civilian review board is one tool, but public pressure really needs to remain vigilant to keep any police department on its toes to police itself.
2: Uh, Sam Walker, did you want to add to uh, to Paul's point?
3: No, but uh i think we're
4: getting near the end and there's one point i really i think is extremely important um i'm looking here at the article that was in the new haven register uh, a week ago and it quoted the president of the board of alders taisha walker myers and she said the real work starts now and she is absolutely correct on that uh the review boards require a lot of you know fine tuning. Uh, tweaking. Uh, You assess how well it's doing. Is there something it needs? Is there something you've got to change? The real work starts now. So this is just the end of chapter one of what will prove to be a long story.
2: And when we're talking about uh, different models of civilian oversight, uh, Sam Walker, uh, you did mention the inspector general model. This is something that New York City has instituted. And why is this? Why do you favor this? Because it's more apt to look at structural change versus the bad apple?
4: Yes, the uh, civilian review boards in investigate individual complaints. And inspector general uh, has the, the discretion to investigate anything and everything in a police department, uh, and it, it, it has a. The New York City IG has a, has a large staff. There's a new one in Chicago. There's one in in Seattle. Um, there are a number of others in the in the uh, around the country, and it, it's getting at the systemic organizational problems, the bad policies, the bad training, the bad supervision, the failure of a department to implement its own policies. And, and if you make those changes, those changes will affect all the officers uh, in, in the department. So that's really wholesale reform. And that's, that's much more effective, in my view, than simply focusing on the individual cop who did something wrong.
2: Uh, we heard from Michael on Twitter who says every city needs a civilian review board. Nobody works in a vacuum, and it also protects honest police officers from rogue groups within a department. Uh, Paul, I wanted to go back to you, uh, Sam Walker, uh, mentioning you know, the, the, uh, the uh, person in the New Haven Register that the real work starts now. Uh, when we've talked to uh, the City of Hartford police chief, uh, there have been issues with the civilian review board here in the City of Hartford uh, meeting uh, on time. I'm having a quorum. Um, is this also uh, something that um, that the mayor uh, in New Haven has uh, worried about in terms of how often this board will it meet? Is.
3: She said in the New Haven Independent repeatedly that her biggest concern was getting a quorum because the group didn't used to have a quorum. People underestimate how much time is, committed, is needed to be committed by civilians who volunteer on these boards. It was interesting, only 7 out of 15 members need to show up for a quorum under the new law. Hopefully that will help. That point has been made not just by the mayor but others, that civilians got to take this seriously. It's a lot, you have long meetings, got to go through a lot of evidence. Incidents tend to be a lot more complicated than you think they are at first lunch when you start seeing if there's body cam video or the different reports or what witness, witnesses remember. So that actually is a mundane but perhaps one of the larger challenges facing civilian review boards.
2: Uh, we can join our conversation eight uh, six zero two seven five seven two six six. Ricardo is calling from Hartford. I understand you you served six years on the civilian review board in Hartford. What were some of the challenges in meeting on time and and uh, in quorum, Ricardo? Oh uh, yes. Yeah, good morning. The challenges that we
7: had were directly related to staffing. Uh, one of the major problems that people in New Haven might run into, as the gentleman mentioned earlier these things require some tweaking is the fact as to who appoints the members of the board in Hartford, uh, I believe eight out of nine are appointed by the mayor. So we ran into a problem with staffing. We needed to have a minimum of five commissioners for a quorum. So we went down to those five people, which, you know, whenever there was an issue, somebody came ill, whatever, we did not have a quorum. However, You know, again, uh, not to be redundant on this, but who appoints the members is very, very important. The current board, as it relates to uh, numbers, was completely appointed by the uh, mayor. We were removed from office after the brutality case involving uh, Emilio Diaz. So we had an issue that we had uh, concerns about. Uh, There were 19 members of the Hartford Police Department who refused to cooperate with the state police investigation into the beating of Emilio Diaz. So we asked to identify those officers and the very next month we were all removed. So for the last year, the members of the Hartford board have been appointed by the mayor yet. They're still having a problem with a quorum. One of the other issues that people have to look into, you got to look at the background of these people that are going to perform this task, you know, they should have relevant backgrounds. And rather not be completely appointed, kind—I like to say—blindly by the mayor. So, just to clarify that point, we were removed circa 2016, 2017. Um, recently, the Hartford Current did a story on how the uh, actual corporation council, you know, um, definitely manipulated some cases and withheld a bunch of complaints that still haven't been heard. So it's also important for New Haven folks to, uh, for the board to, uh, have its own legal counsel, independent of the city. I can, like I said before, the background of applicants is important and actually who appoints them there's also extremely important.
2: Well, thank you, Ricardo, for your perspective, again, um, having served on the Hartford Civilian Review Board. I wanted to go back to, to Paul Bass, New Haven uh, Independent uh, Editor. Uh, we didn't talk about, um, you know, who would make up this uh, review board in New Haven. Uh, so not an issue of the mayor appointing these members, such as in Hartford? She does appoint
3: them, all but um, the, the member of the Board of Alders who goes on, and the at large, citywide members—she points to t- at least ten out of fifteen—but those have to be drawn from recommendations from each of the ten policing districts, and those recommendations have to be drawn from the kind of people we're calling into the show today and other community groups. So people felt comfortable that there was going to be citizen input, and that you know, it, it's a little bit in the weeds there, but mm-hmm. the mayor technically will appoint at least 10 of the 15.
2: And Ricardo's point, uh, he thinks that CRB should have an independent council. Is that even uh, uh, possible in, in the city of New Haven?
3: The issue is going to be budget, because we have budget crisis, not as bad as Hartford's, but they put $50,000 in so they can hold investiga- hire investigators. They put it—they're originally going to have it in the office of the corporation council, and then it was rightly decided that's a conflict because the city lawyers represent the city in these lawsuits. So now it's in our commission of equal opportunities. I'm not sure whether they're going to be able to have independent counsel. They will have independent investigators.
2: So we'll have to leave it there. Paul Bass, thank you so much for your perspective. Also, Sam Walker was joining us, Emeritus Professor of Criminal Justice at University of Nebraska, Omaha, author of The New World of Police Accountability. Sam, thank you. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nalpith After the break, we're going to get a quick update on a request by a dozen states, including Connecticut, who challenged a Trump administration rule that impacts health insurance coverage for contraceptives. You can join us, too. The number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Contraception is viewed as a preventative health service, so under the Federal Affordable Care Act, insurance pays for it. But on Monday, a new administrative rule by the Trump administration went into effect to make it easier for employers to claim an exemption to this mandate. But that rule hasn't gone into effect in all states, including Connecticut. For an update, joining us is Samantha Young, California politics correspondent for Kaiser Health News and California Healthline. Samantha, welcome to Where We Live.
8: Good morning. Thank so, you for having me. Uh,
2: back up a little. Tell us what happened in November uh, related to uh, free access to birth control under the ACA.
8: Well, as you mentioned, the uh, ACA provides uh, preventative services, which includes birth control at no cost to, uh, to women. And the Trump administration wanted to build upon some exemptions that are in the law that would allow any company virtually any company to offer employees health insurance, um, that they would allow um, those companies to uh, claim an a religious or a moral exemption if they don't want to provide or have an objection to providing their employees uh, contraception coverage.
2: And so uh, previously, under the Hobby Lobby case, uh, there were particular uh, employers that were able to claim this exemption, but advocates were worried that this new rule would make anybody um, able to say that they weren't going to provide birth control uh, coverage uh, based on uh, their personal beliefs?
8: That's exactly right, um, the previous rule. Uh, It found that the Supreme Court allowed companies, privately held companies with religious objections, uh, could refuse birth control coverage. This new rule, proposed rule by the Trump administration, would expand that and allow virtually any company to claim not just a religious uh, exemption, but a moral objection.
2: And a federal judge recently ruled that uh, this temporary injunction, uh, including Connecticut, so there were 13 states in Washington, D.C., uh, led by California uh, to put a hold on this rule, but this is just temporary. So in terms of a timeline, uh, what does this mean uh, for these particular states who are fighting this new rule, Samantha?
8: Yeah, well, what we had was we had two um, back-to-back rulings on Sunday. As you mentioned, there were there was a ruling out of California that from a federal judge saying that these rules would be blocked in, in 13 states, including Connecticut. And then yesterday, uh, there was a similar case in a Pennsylvania c- uh, court. Uh, a federal judge there uh, ruled that these block the rules nationwide. So for now, the rules are not in effect. They've been put on hold. Uh, they're... We do expect the administration to appeal, and so this case will continue out in court. As far as the timeline, that's anybody's guess. Um, These things take time as they go through the courts, uh, but for now, uh, the rule is in effect.
2: The Affordable Care Act has been around for some time, so uh, people uh, may forget uh, that uh, birth control can be prohibitively expensive uh, for some. Uh, So the fear is that if this rule is upheld, that um, women would be uh, not able to access important uh, uh, contraception.
8: That's exactly right. Um, Advocacy groups, especially point to Low-income women, uh, student college students who who you know living paycheck to paycheck don't have a big monthly income, and so uh, you know a birth control uh, monthly birth control could cost fifty dollars a month, and so you have some women who are gonna, going to forego paying having that expense, and and then so the argument is that there'll be more there'll be an uptick in unplanned pregnancies, and of course that costs more than preventative
2: birth control. Samantha Young is California Politics Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I am curious, Samantha, if you could uh, just explain a little of the rationale from the Justice Department side that doesn't see any problem with this uh, new administrative rule. Um, If employers aren't required to uh, provide contraception coverage in insurance, uh, where do they think that women will be able to, to get this access to this care? Well, that's a great question, and
8: uh, you know, in their ruling, the, the Trump administration, uh, they, they said in the regulations they put forward, they believe that this, their rules would apply to a very small fraction, is how they phrase it, of women in the United States, about 127,000 women nationwide. So, so they're arguing that this really is, doesn't have a big impact and that, that women do have other places that they could go for these services. When it comes to low-income women, um, there are a number of states that do provide coverage for them or they get grant funding. So they do they do say there's a way for these women to get this coverage. Uh, the California Attorney General, along with the Pennsylvania Attorney General, dispute those claims. They say those numbers are faulty. They, they're way underestimated. Um, but the, the problem is that these rules haven't actually been put into place. So so we just don't know how many employers might take advantage of these.
2: There's a lot of court battles uh, to keep straight. Uh, but also there is uh, the case that is challenging uh, the Affordable Care Act as a whole. I'm saying it's unconstitutional uh, because of the uh, uh, tax penalty no longer in place. Uh, where does that stand, Samantha? That that case is in Texas, being argued in Texas, and uh, yeah, the
8: uh, district court there ruled that case uh, the Affordable Care Act to be unconstitutional. Uh, as you said, you mentioned the uh, the individual mandate and the tax penalty. Congress uh, in two thousand and seven, as part of their tax bill, they eliminated the tax penalty on people who don't have uh, insurance. And as a result, the, uh, the Republican Attorney General in Texas. Uh, filed a lawsuit challenging just the constitutionality of the whole affordable care act saying that because there's no tax penalty now uh... that the congress just doesn't have the authority to uh... carry out all these health exchanges and all the provisions that were included in the affordable care act and so the federal government typically would have stepped in and, and defended that case because it's a federal law they chose not to so California, along with a number of other states, have stepped in and they are trying to defend the law. They lost their, their, their case in district court and they've appealed. So that's another case where we're just kind of waiting and seeing. Uh, for now, the, the Affordable Care Act, it's still law. The, the judge should say that, you know, let, let's let the law continue and until this, we can hear this case can be heard in the appeals court.
2: And what have all these challenges done to uh, people's uh, trust that they should be enrolling in uh, the Affordable Care Act? Has that impacted enrollment numbers at all? Well, it's interesting. You know, there there hasn't been this big, massive
8: departure from uh, federal health insurance programs or from the state health insurance programs. The enrollment period was a lot shorter this time, so we did see a little bit of a decline, but... We don't really know why that happened, if that's because of all the uncertainty, if it's because there are a shorter enrollment period this, this year. So, um, but, but as far as the kind of like this opening the floodgates of people dropping their health insurance because there's no mandate or because there's uncertainty over the law, we haven't really seen that happen yet.
2: Well, Samantha Young, uh, thanks for keeping us updated on this uh, moving story. Uh, Again, she's California politics correspondent for Kaiser Health News and California Healthline. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be starting uh, a series where we're having coffee breaks in different towns around the state. Join me and the Where We Live team in Pomfret at the Vanilla Bean Cafe next Tuesday, January 22nd. You can find out more on our Facebook page. Just search for Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening. Thank you.